This is Bruce. This is John. And this is Trav. Welcome to the TriTech Games Podcast. Your game where you see something fantastical and magical and realize you're not in Kansas anymore, or Earth for that matter. Tonight, we will be discussing both Bureau 13 and Fringeworthy, but also a setting which I was able to actually make part of Bureau 13 canon. Now, many of you have heard me discuss on many previous podcasts the Second World Sourcebook by Stephen Palmer Peterson, and it was a D20 advanced sourcebook which brought about many new rules, many of which, which I have adopted in my own games, but also it brought in a dual world setting called the Second World. Now, in the credit page of the Second World Sourcebook, which it's out of print, but you can still get it via PDF at drivethroughrpg.com and rpgnow.com. In the credits page, and I happen to have the PDF, and I sent it to the gentleman earlier this evening. Let me get back there. Yes. On the credits page, you know, Second World Source book written by and designed by Stephen Palmer Peterson, open content. With the exception of Second World Simulations, all text in this book is designed open game content. This is an experiment of sorts, sharing not just game mechanical elements, but also story elements via an open license. Hopefully you or others will find some of the ideas in here compelling enough that you will want to expand upon them, either in fiction or in game material. Now, when Rich DeHolka asked me to head up the Bureau 13 OGL design project, and I saw this, I said, ooh, challenge accepted. Now, in... The cabal of families that myself and Eric the Enabler, Eric T. Spar, helped create for Bureau 13 D20, there was, I need to find that, ah, two of the families have ties to this second world setting. Now, in Bureau 13 D20, this would be, and you can look this up, I'll give you a minute to get your PDFs going. It's on page 173 in the enemy section and 174. Now, two of the families listed after the Price family, which is the one that Eric made specifically, are the McCann and the Shen families. Now, the McCann family, Merchants Extraordinary, extra, supposed to be extraordinary, based on a Richmond, Virginia, the McCann's family's most overt face is that of Solstice International. This is a mega corporation with enough wealth to make them equal to a major nation. Secretly, they deal in cross-world trade, bringing magical knowledge and items to Earth. And now the Shen family. Masters of political survival. The Shen family, based in China, have survived more social and political changes than any other family. The Shens effectively run many of the Hong Kong triads and tongs and are related to the last imperial dynasty. The Shens have mastered Chinese elemental magic and use it to maintain their power. Now... Those families are in the Second World setting. Those groups. Uh, McCann, Patrick McCann, runs Solstice International, which is in the Second World setting in many of the organizations that are in the book that you can use as part of the setting. So if you were to go to the Second World source book, you'd actually have more information yes. about these people than what you'd find in this particular page on in Bureau 13. Yes. I, as I said, when I saw the open content blurb on the bottom right-hand corner of the credits page, 
it uh, he Stephen Palmer Peterson, who isn't in, into writing role playing anymore. I, from what I understand, he's now a screenwriter in Virginia. But he this was his major contribution to OGL, and in that was the open license to use pretty much anything in the book. And I have seen in other OGL products, and again, Bruce has seen the number of OGL products that I have on my laptop, that many of the mechanics have been used, especially like giving defense bonuses to the D&D 3.5 classes and reputation bonuses, which are things from D20 Modern. Basically, the whole Second World Sourcebook is how to do a cross-world setting, mixing rules from one OGL world to another. And they use the second world as the dual-world example. Now, the reason why I brought this up is because, yeah, I put this stuff in to Bureau 13D20 when we all worked on it now, oh God, eight, nine years ago as of this taping. And I, I just felt that, okay, yeah, this is in here, and I wanted to do this to explain where these particular things come from. And of course, expand on the second world and how it can be used as both a world in a Bureau 13 game and as a fringe setting. Now, the whole concept of the second world is that there is this world linked to whatever modern day Earth you have. It's like it's like a fantasy version of our modern Earth. Instead of the United States of America, we have the Central Empire. And then, of course, you have, you know, London, Tokyo, Berlin, Africa, North, South. It's geographically pretty much like Earth. There's like no new continents or anything. Yeah, it's a parallel Earth. Yes. And so versus an alternate Earth. Yes. And the way that I had it set up here was that. And this is the main thing that I use, and I've even I have play tested this in a previous Bureau 13 campaign years ago. That one of the things about the second world is that every so often it bleeds back over into Earth, what they call the first world. Now, the first world is where everything mundane and normal exists. And the supernatural does exist in the Bureau 13 world, but it just stays hidden. And of course, Bureau 13's job is to hide it from the public and if necessary combat it. Now, the first world has this very interesting way if natives of the first world see something that they're not supposed to and usually it's like, okay, you know what, I saw that corner of my eye and you just brush it off and you don't remember it anymore and you're fine. But there are those who see it and they just can't get it out of their head. They're like, oh my God, that was someone with a sword fighting a dragon. I'm not imagining this. And you think you're going crazy and you know, you're like, okay, I need to you know, just drink it away. And if you don't forget it after about a week, there's something called shunting, where basically you end up in the second world in pretty much the same geographical spot. So if I'm here in the Detroit area and that happened to me, I'm going to end up in southeastern Michigan on the second world. It ends up being a fantasy setting but because people have been shunting over little by little and you tend to get a little bit of first world influence. And if possible, this setting even allows you to play, 
yeah, you were born a human, but over the course of a week or so, you end up turning into an elf or a dwarf or a halfling. And it allows a player to, okay, I want to be me, but... And, of course, they off, offer other races in this game. I mean, totally unique races. And so, yeah, your your characters... The way I have it is, okay, your normal character, everyday, run-of-the-mill person, sees a supernatural event. Now, if you survive it, you know, the Bureau will come in if, they're, if they know about it. They'll come in, they'll help out. And usually how the Bureau is, of course, they make it worth your while to join. It's like, yeah, you'll be able to do this for a living. Well, I don't want to fight. We will pay you handsomely. And most people are going to be like, where do I sign up? Now, this whole exile thing, where if you now, because now, yeah, you re, you fully remember it. The game rule I put is that once they get to Bangor, Maine, because it's in that pocket dimension, it removes exile. So you stay in the first world, Earth, and you can go about and be a bureau agent and not get worried about getting sucked back into the second world. Because once you get exiled, you become a citizen of the second world. You can go back to the first world. But it's like the whole thing with the Godfather. I try to get away and it keeps drawing me back in. So you can stay for about half a week. And of course, there are magic items in the source book that allow you to stay a little longer. But And spells and whatnot. But after a while, you end up getting sucked back and you're back in the second world again. Oh, I'm just thinking, because so basically part of that, because we, we have put in there that there is the uh, counseling and so forth. It all takes place in, in Bangor, Maine, and it takes a couple weeks, and that's probably just enough to make sure you don't, you know, as you say. Get shunted, yeah. Yeah. But there are those who basically have an encounter, but not big enough to trigger a bureau intervention, and then... They get shunted. And the way Exile works also is that you end up getting basically wiped from history. If you had, you know, you went to high school, you know, people would remember after a while, forget you just, excuse me, the first earth, the first world decide, you know, it has a way of just, no, that person never existed because they were part of that magic thing. And just, that doesn't work here. Now, the way that they describe it in the SWS, the second world source, or SWSB is, and I've mentioned this before, the concept of world resistance, where magic, you kind of have to break through Earth's natural defense against magic to cast a spell. And what I use is, it's a, it'd be a caster level check. Um, what is it? 10 or 15, if you want. 10 plus two times the spell level. So most spells end up being rituals anyways until you gain enough levels in the spell casting class where after a while you can just take 10 and you're known as you've become part of the spell casting elite. And after a while you gain enough levels in wizard or sorcerer or cleric or whatever, where you can just make the role and yeah, it'll cast. Now in Bureau 13, we know we have a lot of wand users and staff users, and that's how they cast their spells in the Bureau. You can make that where, okay, that bypasses the world resistance check if you use a Bureau Wander staff to do your magic, you don't have to make that roll anymore because you're just, okay, I cast it, I have my focus, I'm good. And I know in Bureau 13d20, there are rules for wands and staves 
Yeah, I mean, it's not necessary. I mean, you know. Well, you can do it, but then I, I threw in the world resistance. So the Bureau, well, because you're trained and you do magic more as an agent and you gain levels, you're going to learn how to bypass that world resistance after a while. But because I've noticed in many Bureau 13 past and present editions where a lot of Bureau mages uses wands and staffs, mm-hmm. I've added that that in as, okay, it bypasses the world resistance. Because I remember even in Nick Pilata's stories, Raul, and I'm blanking on the other mage's name, but they would have their Bureau staffs and it would shrink it down to a wand size where they could be a little more discreet. We can just say that the wand and staff bypasses world resistance are good. So I'm thinking about this exile thing. Yes. It sounds like, okay, that could be tricky to erase someone from existence. Say you have some patriarch of a major wealthy family and he's got grandkids and he has this encounter and he doesn't get, you know, doesn't get to go to Bangor, Maine and he's dis- he vanishes a week later. He doesn't exist. Well, and usually that would be up to the GM and the player to say, okay, well, well, what would happen to your, what would happen to the people in your family? Oh, after this one, he passed away or just, you forget about him and just day in the life. So, so, so it's not an erasure. It's basically, if, if you're that important, it makes a reason why you vanish. Right. Yeah. They'll, they'll have to do it like that. Yeah. Because I'm, I even look at that. I'm like. Yeah, well, what if you are, like, really connected? What if you're, like... Bill Gates. Important and well-known. Yeah, like I said, Bill Gates. Bill Gates, you know... It's funny because in the Second World Sourcebook, John... Yeah. I can even direct to where that is. Oh, I, I was reading, I was reading about the corporations that shunt stuff back and forth, so... This- oh, yeah, oh, yeah. Well, on page 91 and 92 of the Second World Sourcebook... You have specific feats that you can take that most of them you are, and it depends, you can either be second world raised mm-hmm. and and as per D20, because this was written for 3.0, 3.5 D&D and D20 modern. Uh, real easy to upgrade to Pathfinder. Just it, It's not that much of a problem. And you have the feat first world celebrity. You were a celebrity in the first world prior to exile, the benefit. The primary benefit of this feat is player self-satisfaction. This way you get to play a famous movie star, music, musician, athlete, athlete, or politician. Your character also gains a plus benefit of plus one to will saves, all that ego, plus three to rep if you use it and you start with double your normal starting funds. So, I mean, you could be a celebrity. Yeah, you'll get phased out in the first war in Earth, but those of you, those who have phased over in the second will be like, wait a minute, you're here? Cool. We get to be with, you know, fill in the blank, a famous celebrity. Oh, so like Scott Bayo. <laughs> yeah, okay. Yeah. Or, you know, somebody from the past who just, they, oh, you, know, you figure, oh, they just left Hollywood. And it's like, no, they got phased out. But usually most exile, it's just you never existed. I mean, basically, the bigger the hole you would leave, the harder it is to, you know. Sc- yeah, they, they really, yeah, the exile, the the whole thing of the shroud on first Earth, it it takes a lot more mojo to wiggle you out of the picture. But well, the whole thing is, is let's say you aren't found by a bureau agent. Let's say it's not that big of a thing because. Yeah, it was something that was in a forest and somebody saw it driving by 
on a road and they just couldn't get it out of their head. And what it is is that after a while you start, like you'll look out of the corner of your eye and let's say you're looking down a hallway and that hallway all of a sudden leads to a forest or a field and it shouldn't, you're in a building. Well, after a while you, you, okay, brush it away and you keep having more and more of these visions. After a while you're having to, you know, drink coffee, pop amphetamines, you know, to try to stay awake because you know you fall asleep and you're going to wake up in the second world. And that's usually how it is. You end up just, you can't fight it. You're up for three days straight. You wake up and you're laying on, on like the, the dewy grass of a forest. And you realize that sounds are brighter. Smells are, you know, you're smelling the smells of nature that you can't even get back on earth. You're in the second world. And of course, it's a little higher. So you got that sort of feel in the air. I was reading the, the, some of his fiction about the, uh, the recorded phone call about this woman who saw something and is she's being stalked by guys in, you know, dark suits and, and glasses. Yeah, right. Yeah, that whole thing. Robin, yeah. And she opens and she sees a force through her bathroom door. And part of me says, okay, I was about to, I was about to say Narnia, but that was already covered in a different text. And I remembered House. You know, one with Cliff Clavin, the uh, the the, com- the combat plumber? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's a great movie, folks. You got hunted down house. Oh yeah, where he's like, yeah, it seems yeah, you got one of them alternate dimensions there. Yeah, I've seen enough danger and drama in my lifetime making one up, chucking your shorts. Yeah, that scene. Yeah. The thing is, though, we also have a lot of native stuff in Bureau. I mean, that part of Bureau Thirteen. There's a lot of native stuff. So, are we talking stuff from the second? You're seeing stuff from the second world, or just seeing supernatural in general? What do you mean native stuff? Like in, what Bureau, you, I, in the Bureau, not... in Bureau Thirteen, the Earth ha- the Earth has its own supernatural. Or the Bureau Thirteen Earth has supernatural. It has its own. You know, you have your ghosts, you have your spirits, you got your witches, you got all this sort of stuff. They're native. We have native, you know. Yeah, and but as long as they don't interact with those of a modern mindset is how I do it. Now, if you were born and raised into it, see, I've, I've had to tweak it a little bit because it's like, okay, the, this first world setting makes it like there is no supernatural whatsoever. It's either a modern setting or maybe near future like a cyberpunk setting. Or you might have, they even say, an occult conspiracy. So you might have like, you know, the secret orders of the Vatican and all that, and they might have rituals and there might be inured to it, but this is more, you're playing more like a police officer or a soccer mom or a computer specialist. And this happens to you and you get shunted. All right. So it sounds like you can be acclimated without going to the, going to Bangor, Maine, to the supernatural. So that's probably how kitchen witches and hedge wizards don't get shunted, because they're, they, they're slowly acclimating themselves to it. It's along the lines of, if you're doing it yourself, yeah, okay. Now, if it's like you see something, like you're driving along, and all of a sudden you can't, that's not a horse, that's a unicorn. And then a few days later, you end up in the second world. But there are several adventures around supernatural. I mean, uh, heck, I just put out part two of one uh i just posted it uh it would, this will date us from oh your rock game yeah yeah i remember for that yeah that one is actually based on a published adventure and i'm going okay but okay so what you're saying is that all those people who got who basically not rock need to worry about being shunted now to over to the uh second world is that what you're saying or well it would depend on if the bureau gets to them 
and gets them to Banger Main and all that, then once they hit Banger Main, Exile is automatically severed. That's how I do it. Now, depending on how these people deal with whatever they went through in the supernatural, if they just, you know, like, no, okay, fine. If I was under my control, it was if they managed to fool themselves to not constantly harp on it, they might escape exile. But here's the thing. The backstory is it's been going on for 10 years. Then you would have to chalk in something that somehow exile is being blocked because they would have all been... You could say that there was just something... Okay, they have something in... Okay, when Stephen Palmer Peterson had his site up, which sadly the site is defunct now, it's second. it was second-world-simulations.com. It's probably an ar- archive.org. You probably find an archive.org, probably. And of course, for you listening... Worst comes to worst, I managed to get all that stuff down, all the various adventures, <clears throat> with persuasion that could be put in the file section. <clears throat> Anyways, um, but there were things called sigils, hmm. which they could survive in the first world, and if a native was exposed to these sigils, not only would they be able to do magic in this world, in the first world, they also could possibly escape exile. Now, granted, you might be walking around with this sigil almost like an Eberron dragon mark on your skin, where even if you try to, you know, cut it out, it will grow back. You know, what? what's the term that they use? Excoriate it. It would grow back. But yeah, you'd be able to survive without exile potential and do magic because you're bypassing the world resistance. And matter of fact, that was a base for one of my, uh, I believe for the Bureau 13 D20 playtesting I was doing years ago, where they all got exposed to this sigil and they weren't exiled and they became a Bureau team because of it. And they became known as Team Shifter. And so there are ways to avoid exile. That would be up to the GM. But If you do get exiled, if you see something and it's not where a bureau agent can get to you for one reason or another, in about two to four days, you're going to get shunted, which means here you are, a normal 21st century human, and it can be anywhere in the world, and you end up geographically, same spot, but it's on this new earth. Now, if you're like out in the wilderness, it's going to be a lot like a fantasy campaign. If you are near... Okay, there are 12 forces on the second world which sort of shape it magically. Now, it would be in the... uh, Chapter 3 of the SWSB, which is titled Wardens. Now, these Wardens, game-wise, they're kind of like prestige classes, but you can also do it feat-based. Personally, I recommend doing it feat-based. The classes, I just look, I said, these aren't... You know, they're... uh, I mean, me and um, Eric Spar and Gerald Gentry, who old playtester friend of mine, John, you and I, us two and you talked years ago on Skype about in the early days of doing Bureau 13D20. We looked at the Warden class and just, no, no, stick with going feet-based. But the Wardens are based on 12 powers, primal forces in the second world. Energies are principles that guide the development and structure of that world as a whole. They grant these people substantial personal power, but developing that power can carry a heavy cost in training and ritual components, i.e. you have to spend gold pieces to get reagents and 
sit through rituals for, you know, like eight hours a day for up to a week or whatever, but you gain these powers, which are, they end up being intrinsic where even if you die, you come back and you, you know, let's say you get resurrected, you can still get them. And these forces are dream, feral, flesh, lightning, metal, motion, shadow, vector, gate, pattern, rune, and tone. Now, these 12 various powers, pattern is actually the whole planet Mars. The rest are on various places of Earth. So where they're positioned, like in between two or three of them, will determine sort of how that part of the world is. And like, what is it? Gate in, well, and I always have trouble with the old Aztec name for Mexico City, Tecnotitlan. The Aztec Empire was actually like sort of humanoid jaguars known as the Halcone. And their empire fell, and so the Gate Warden power is centered there. Now, the Feral Warden power is based in the Amazon rainforest near modern-day Manaw, Brazil. So all through Central and South America, you got weird things coming in and nature running rampant. So you're going to get that there might be an occasional outsider or whatever, like in Central America and South America, you've got a lot of magical beasts and monsters, humanoids, and there's actually agriculture and animal domestication is hard to do because just that's how the power runs in that area. So unless you have an animal companion, you go on foot because it's just in that area, it's hard to train a beast of burden. They are at a very low level of technology because they can't domesticate animals. They, they can't do crops. It's just the laws of nature and physics down there <clears throat> due to these two massive powers, gate and feral, just the societies have been shaped by those powers. Now, I have a list of where the 12 powers are, and I have to get back to geography. Yes. Where these 12 powers are all based shape how the world, this second world, has formed. Ah, here we go. Now, the dream power is based in, now these are all the second world locations. Los Angeles where actually you go there and it's like stark black and white. And as you get away from LA color returns and you can see, you know, black and white and color, the, the, the similarity to Hollywood, the feral warden, Amazon base in Brazil, the flesh warden, Calcutta, India. This is like shape shifting and lycanthropes are there. And of course this would give rise to the Rakshasa which if Pixie were here right now, she'd be shuddering because I've used them as villains and it just leaves a bad taste in her mouth, that particular race. The Gate Warden, Tecnotitlan, Mexico. Lightning Wardens, Tokyo, Japan. You're still using sword and sorcery, but lightning also controls electricity as in electronics. So you could be on a maglev train and you're still fighting with swords and crossbows. The Metal Warden, Berlin, Germany, which also includes heat and steam. If you want to go have a steampunk adventure, you would go to Europe. Because from Berlin, most of Europe is connected by train tracks and steam tech. 
problem is Tokyo has the electronics. Russia's pretty much a burned out wasteland because those two empires have been fighting. So Russia is like just this scarred and somewhat radioactive battlefield because you have elementally fueled uh, explosives and whatnot. So you have fire elementals being made into bombs and just Russia is just gone. Uh, the motion warden is in Hong Kong, China. Therefore, you have a lot of the, like, you can do a lot of the wuxia type stuff. Like in Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. The pattern warden, all of Mars. Second world Mars, you look and you notice, oh, look, all the mountain lines are, all the mountain ranges are perfectly straight. There are forests there. They are definitely shaped. And you just see that. You know how a pattern is for like a flock of birds, how they all manage to keep together, but much more to find. The Rune Warden is New York, and the City of Runes is a prominent setting in this particular um, book. The Shadow Warden, that power is based in London. All halflings come from London, and if you're a native halfling, you have like dark skin because the power of shadow excuse me, which is not necessarily evil. It's not like most shadow plane settings where, oh, if you've been touched by the shadow plane, you get a little dark in your, your demeanor. No, it's just sort of a dusky kind of shade to all the halflings on the second world. The Tone Warden is Vetterfugue, Antarctica. Basically, it's a crystalline city in Antarctica that when, when the blo wind blows through the towers just right, if you listen, you could hear it anywhere on Earth, but it just has to be at the right time, the right... And the Vector Warden, which is matters of teleportation and making wormholes, is based in Mbanza in the Democratic Republic of Congo. So you have these 12 great cities or great areas that, depending on what cities you're in between, that kind of shapes the area of the Second World. Now, North America has Dream, Rune, and, you know, Gate, because they're near Mexico City. So those three particular areas, North America is very much like your typical fantasy setting. Now, problem is, a lot of people in, in the first world, if they come in through one of these cities, these areas tend to have a lot more modern-day Earth influence. As you get farther away from these cities, you're going to end up, it's going to be more like a fantasy campaign especially in the places like out in the West and then the deep South, you're going to get that antebellum type of chivalry. It even says in the book that a lot of paladins seem to come from the South. Mm. Hey, Trav, because the thought, yes. I hate to, I don't want to derail you, but uh, one thought, uh, something makes me, um, beer 13 is not the only source for people to come here. Would this be would this would the second world be second world to more than one first world? You could have that. I don't see why not. I mean, I linked it to Bureau Thirteen because, um, okay, John, if you look went back and saw the organizations besides Solstice International, there are three first world organizations that touch on the second world. One of them is Solstice International. Another one is a group that hunts mind flayers who these mind flayers will come from the second world and go to the first world and, you know, like take people, use them experiment. Then there's a third one. They're simply known as 
seven. Essentially, they are Bureau 13 in this other world. They just have a different name. I looked, I said, let's see. They track various things. They are based on a secret government agency. Yeah, it's Bureau 13. They just call themselves. It was supposed to be a secret department of the EPA. Habitat Recovery 7 or Habrec 7. After a while, they just shortened it to 7. But, yeah, it, it's Bureau 13. And I just said, yeah, it's a division of them. They're here. Yeah. So, yeah, they have that direct link, but I don't see why other beings couldn't come from other worlds and be here, you know, through a rift or whatever. Right, so you, but I mean, it's, you know, it, you have this entire supplement, so it's complicated enough. So I wouldn't add any extra layers that didn't have to be there. Right. Well, the thing is, is like, yeah, these two worlds are linked because there's, okay, the, what's the term? An interstice? In the setting, it's known as simply the forge. Now, the Forge pretty much covers a lot of your astral and ethereal needs because it's like a dimension with various types of dimensions. You can go from one part of it being like the elemental plane of Earth to the next part. It's called the Labyrinth, which the Vector Wardens deal with. Basically, when you use your any type of teleportation power or because the Vector Warden, even if they don't have a... a the, the powers that they have, they're called bindings. And you can bind them to where magic item slots go, or you can bind them to your soul, which is known as the spirit beta. Now, even if you don't have a binding, you still gain the teleportation power once you say, I'm a vector warden. And whenever you teleport, you are technically going through the labyrinth, which is sort of like their astral plane. So spells like astral projection, you can just say, ah, you're going through the labyrinth to go from one place to another. You know, but but there's a one-to-one -one correspondence between uh, the second world and the first world. Yes, you teleport or you phase or plane shift or whatever you're going to do from one world to another. You go to exactly the same location in the yeah, other world. Yeah, and, and Stephen Palmer Peterson even said, "Yeah, if you're going to do that, you don't need to have that miss because in Pathfinder, remember, it's the same spells as 3.0, 3.5." where they say if you mess up a plane shift spell, there's like a 40% chance you'll mess up. No, in this setting, because it's directly linked that much geographically, he says, yeah, if you're doing this, you can get rid of that percentage roll. You go from first world Detroit to second world Detroit. There's no mix-up. It's just you cross through the forge very momentarily to get from first world to second world or vice versa. The Forge is sort of that magical buffer dimension between the two worlds. And it also links them. I'm also looking at the Catwalks of the Gods. Yes, that's another one, yeah. <laughs> Which sounds you could, that one you could get lost. Yes. Well, there's, an, um, there's one of the bindings which allows you to uh, actually hide in paintings and stuff and walk in the world that is in mirrors and paintings. That's the Catwalks. There's also another one called the Enkisi Void, which you can go there, you can hide, and it's almost kind of like what happens when you do a time stop spell. And you can hide there and relax and recoup and then come back out into the real world. But anything, what is it? Anything you take with you, you can't take. So you even have to like exhale and exhale the air that's in the Enkisi Void because you can't take it back with you into the real world you'll end up like coughing and sputtering because you'll have to leave the air back there because it'll be like you instantly suffocate. 
uh, you might have not the sickened condition or the nauseated condition, but you'll have a condition where you'll be down for a little bit. Like you got punched in the gut really hard. Yeah, yeah, where you get that, <laughs> you know. Um, so, yeah, these worlds, the, these these various 12 places, if you teleport to them, there's already a lot of first worlders there. Now, if you get shunted over there, let's say you're a computer scientist. Arcane magic, especially wizardry, is going to come real easy to you because everything is codified, quantified. It's there written down in books. And just for, like, because in this world, certain laws don't work the same. Now, we're going to go here to the technology page, and this is, like, pages 51 to, like, 56. They... One of the beautiful things that Stephen Palmer Peterson did was something called the theory advance tree. In order to have one technology, you must have prerequisites. Let's take, oh, the combustion engine. In order for you to have the combustion engine by this tree, you must have the concepts of thermodynamics and precision machinery. This opens the way for cars, trucks, motorcycles, submarines, and modern ships. Without the electricity or similar advance, the power of these engines would be limited to that of early 20th century engines. Let's see another one. Uh, Medicine. The realization that tiny bacteria, viruses, and microbes surround us at all times transform medicine from an occult art to a modern science. The prereqs are optics and basic chemistry. Now, optics is because that's what allows lenses. If you don't have the optics discipline in your world, you don't have telescopes which means that kind of sucks for nautical navigation. And because it has no prerequisites, it's a base uh, knowledge. Or, what is? Uh, optics. I was looking, I was looking at it. It has no, no, it has no prerequisite. No, that it, it allows the crafting of quality spy glasses that triple your ranges for visual observations, but not in conditions of darkness. The culture can also make and use magnifying glasses that provide a plus five technology bonus to, well, now perception checks. Excuse me, but slow the search considerably, taking one minute per regular check of a five by five area. Because uh, telescopes and eventually microscopes, at first the images seen through microscopes were quite blurry. In fact, the mere use of them was a real skill, what we now would call days blobology. Regardless, the devices made available by these theories allowed for significant advances in astronomy and navigation. Yes, because we were able, uh, unless you had a telescope, your distance that you would go in a ship would be, oh no, we can't see the coastline anymore. Well, with telescopes and whatnot, you were able to navigate farther away and even make bigger ships after a while. Because shipbuilding is a prerequisite, which construct or shipbuilding is a discipline. Construction is the prerequisite. This allows the construction of ships over forty feet long. Huh. I, I like how this works because it looks that there are some of uh, these prerequisites you would like agriculture. If you don't got agriculture, you're not going to have medieval villages. Well, right. That's the whole point. Um, and we'll go by the and we'll go again. I use it because it works. The and because this is based on D20 Modern and whatnot, we'll use the parlance for progress levels. If you have a heart now, John, uh, pages 59 and 60, I believe, are the Theory Advanced Tree and the one for the Second World Advanced Tree. On that Second World Advanced Tree, you see certain ones have checks 
certain ones have X's. Ah. Ones that have X's. That's a way of saying, hi, this discipline does not work in your dimension at all due to the laws of magic and or physics. If you have a block on basic chemistry and you're a first world that you came over and let's say you have a wallet full of credit cards, photographs, and laminated like your social security guard. After a while, because you don't have basic chemistry, your plastics will start to deteriorate. Your modern clothing might start falling apart easier because let's say you have something with a polyester cotton blend. Polyester does not work in the second world. It will start falling apart. More importantly, there's a lot of glue that's used in modern clothing. Yeah. Glue's sure. made out of plastic. Yeah. Your shoes will start falling apart. Yeah. Not just shoes. Clo- yeah, all your shirt, your sleeves will come off your shirt. Your uh, zipper will come apart. Your belts will come apart. Well, yeah, you're going to end up having to get indigenous clothing and also armor because, yeah, you're going to be walking around in tatters within maybe a couple of weeks. So I'm looking at the, yeah so looking at this so there's no basic chemistry but but there is medicine. No, it's not. There's no medicine. So you got optics and you have iron. So it looks like it goes up to optics, iron working, but no thermodynamics, no construction. Yeah, but you got okay. you don't have steam tech in the second world. But yeah. here's the thing. This is this is something. Now look at the elemental cluster. Yeah, you can you have bronze working, but you can't harness fire or lightning. Now, the way they get around that are the warden powers, where these warden powers can be turned into spells. And matter of fact, at the end of, let's see, end of chapter two, Second World Spells, the three or four that they list, those are warden bindings. Uh, Armor shackles, vortex, and a couple of others. Let me go to that page here, and I can read them all. So it sounds like what you can do with bronze working is that, while you may not have thermodynamics, you still would have... A hearth. The thermodynamics is the advanced version of working with stuff. So you can still have bronze working. You can still have a fire and create, you know. And a, and a basic forge. Yeah, and a basic forge. As I said, pretty much the second world would be at PL2. You might have some early PL3 stuff with clockwork and gears and whatnot, but no steam engine. If you have a clockwork device, it's going to be crank. Well, Trav, I can see, you know, they've got powered aircraft and rocket jets. That's all within the things that are checked. So in, um, in technology? Let me look here. Yeah, yeah. World? But it's but you can't have like a reciprocating engine. Yeah, I'm mean, looking at the aircraft cluster. The aerodynamics is ch- it, if it's checked, you can have it. If yeah, it's not saying. checked, it's possible, but the second world hasn't discovered it yet. Oh, okay. Well Yeah. The check marks are to show disciplines that your campaign, okay, we have discovered these. And, and just to point out, that's one way to fill that thing out because there is a blank one. So it's really up to you, the GM, to decide what you're going to check and not check in this chart. Well, that's the whole point. The theory advanced tree sheet, I've used these ad nauseum, ad infinitum. I've listed for like, uh, I had the, uh, bleh. once more with feeling, the mouth works. The Maze World campaign that Perky Goth and I did. I filled out massive amounts of these sheets because it was a multi-planar dungeon crawl. So I had to sit there and say, okay, we need to set the general tech level for Maze World and how it might vary on other certain worlds, depending on, because at the most, these were modern-day humans, this maze, at most 1870s tech, at most, which means just post-Civil War. 
steep. It's just no steam tech and a couple other things. But other than that, yeah, it so and I filled out massive amounts of these theory advanced trees. Okay, I'm just looking at these. So some of the things like precision machinery actually depends on the steam age cluster. The steam age cluster is really dependent upon the iron age, the elemental, and oh yeah, the fact that you put a hard block on basic chemistry. Oh no, you screw over a lot of other advancements that you could have. And uh, where is the where? Oh, and the alchemy cluster. So you can have alchemy. But you may not have basic chemistry. Right. Which means an alchemy and codified magic is where you get magical alchemy, such as sun rods, tender, tw- tender twigs, alchemist fire, alchemist acid, all those cute little chemical items that are in the ultimate equipment book. The, there are four things that basically are totally independent of all the street. Animal domestication, direct faith, monetary systems, and psychology. Yes, that means they've all been found because, well, psychology, well, that's the, the, to a lot They of have no dependencies. They have no dependencies, and they're all primary. Yes. Now, see, that's what I was talking about with going down to the Amazon rainforest. In that area, in most of South America, you would have an X through the animal domestication and an X through the agriculture. You just cannot domesticate animals. It is wildlife down there. And agriculture, you pick off what's off the tree. You don't plant new stuff. You pick off what's there. It ain't there ain't nothing there. You don't eat. You are a hunter-gatherer. There is no farming in South America in the second world because the the feral warden power that encompasses the Brazilian rainforest down there puts a hard limit on those two disciplines, but only in South America. Once you get into Central America or you leave that continent, you're fine. Or unless you have a specific animal companion or familiar or like a paladin's mount, then that bypasses that because that's a magical bond between character and animal. But you just want to train a pet monkey to do something or domestic mate cows to farm, that's not going to happen. Just the land will not allow it. But yeah, I, I do like the idea of a prerequisite tree because it does show how interconnected a lot of things are, but it isn't in the weeds, so to speak. Because you could you could easily make a, a, a tech tree that's in the weeds, and it basically would take you a week to fill out all the all the branches. I like the actually it's fairly broad strokes. Yes, and of course you could you know extrapolate on this if you wanted to get into future technologies, but they made it to where it's up to modern day and near future. See, they don't get into things like cybernetics, although cybernetics would probably be... Well, let's see. Let me just take a gander here. Of course, you'd have to have medicine. Uh, information, either the information age cluster or in the... Iron, or could you, can you make a case for it in the iron age? Uh, actually, no, where do you have machinery? Uh, steam age. It could be actually off the steam age. Or actually, it could be its own cluster. Well, yeah, but that, that's what I mean. This theory advanced tree goes up to modern-day technology, which usually the way that they did this is at the most you might... They said you could have like a dystopian-type world be the first world, but I see this as up to and including modern technology. Steve, Mr. Peterson didn't get any farther. He said, if you want to do future tech, that's going to be up to you because at this time, D20 future had not come out yet. And the way they did D twenty future, it was definitely pulp. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah, again, yeah. Uh, the, our science our, our science geek here, ladies and gentlemen. I wear the badge proudly. Yeah. I, I I'm not I have nothing against pulp science and uh, pulp science fiction. I just you know when someone says they're hard science fiction, then do things which aren't. I get angry. Yeah, and everybody has that. With you know, if you're going to do it, do it right. You want no, you want your verisimilitude, John. I understand that entirely. And there are times that we appreciate it. I enjoy playing a storm. <laughs> I play. I enjoy playing a stormtrooper in Star Wars uh, RPG, and also enjoy being a, a, hard, a semi-hard hard science fiction game. So, yeah, it's just that you know, I, I uh, you know, you, I don't like I don't like your peanut butter in my chocolate. <laughs> no, no, and people are like that. As I said, you like your verisimilitude to a certain degree. Yeah. Okay, I was looking at thermodynamics. It basically is the effect, the theory of thermodynamics. Okay, yeah, yeah, that's interesting. Anyway, oh, and then you have you. Of course, you have the rule sheet, which is the world world rules, which is all the yeah, where you can write down. This is more the crunch text type stuff, and you have campaign world campaign rules and world rules. This is Bruce Sheffer saying. There are a million, million worlds out there, so go explore them. This is John Ryer saying keep your powder dry and keep those cards and letters coming in. This is Richard Tahoka. Wait till you see what's coming next. And this is Trav. There's a reason why it's called gaming. It's for having fun. Yo, brothers. This was the Tri-Tech Games Podcast. You know the drill. It's protected under the Creative Commons license. No commercial reproduction, no derivatives, and sucker, you best attribute this to the folks at TriTech Games. And if you don't, we'll be after your sorry butts, cause we're some bad mothers. Hi, this is Trav from the Travcast. Listen to me Tuesday nights, 8 to 10 p.m. Eastern on listen.dementiaradio.org colon 8027.